I stayed at a hotel last night in Pocklington, England, and when I was about to check in, there were some people standing around in the lobby who walked up to me and said, are you sure that you want to stay here? And I said, well, why wouldn't I? They said, well, this hotel is haunted. It's haunted by the ghost of a little girl named Charlotte, and a lot of people check in, see something scary, and then they check right back out and go somewhere else. They said, are you sure you want to put up with that? And I said, I don't really have a problem with it at all. You know, if a ghost wants to come visit me, that's fine. But honestly, I don't believe in any of that crap. And then the receptionist handed me the key and said, you will tomorrow morning. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my hotel room in Belfast and I should let you know that I did not see any ghost in that hotel in Pocklington. And I've actually seen scarier hotels in Wichita, Kokomo, and Texarkana. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show is founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is John Strom. John is a singer, songwriter, guitar player, drummer. You might know him from bands like the Lemonheads and the Blake Babies. He's also an entertainment attorney. And I would guess that right now he's protecting the interest of some of your favorite bands. John grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, but he splits his time these days between Nashville and Birmingham, Alabama. And my earliest memories of John would be seeing him play at the patio. And I always enjoyed the bands that he was in. He was in Bella Deluxe, Hello Stranger, Antenna. And uh, it's great to see him doing so well these days. But I went over and visited him in his office in Nashville, and I think we had a really nice conversation. So here's John Strom. Yeah, I was, I was a Bloomington kid. Bloomington's a great place to grow up. It's, a, it's kind of a dangerous place to grow up because you got everything there, you know. It's any kind of trouble you can think of, you can get into. And my parents... Uh, bless their hearts, wonderful people, but they're academics, and you know they were not the most attentive parents. And so, I was I was technically grounded from age uh, I think fourteen until seventeen, but I still managed to get up on it. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I was one of these kids. I, I grew up just being into music. You know, from the time I could form a thought, I was I, I wanted to be a musician, <clears throat> and uh, that was really, you know, I, I had a period being into you know drawing pictures and stuff. But basically, it was all about wanting to be a creative dude. And my parents sort of encouraged it. You know, they're professors, so they wanted me to do well in school. But um, Did they teach there at IU? Yeah, my dad is an English professor, and he's had a real interesting career. He, he taught at Oxford in England for a number of years, and he eventually retired from Columbia just last year. In his mid-70s, he's had a real long career. But my parents divorced when I was young, and my mother was a university administrator. She married another English professor. <laughs> So I had an English professor dad and stepdad. 
but you know, I was just into music and, and, uh, so from a very early age, I started kind of trolling around town and walking to the record stores and hanging out. I was that kid. You know, I'd go down to Duroc and, you know, Discount Dan and Ozarka and just kind of stand around and, you know, rifle through the, the, the stacks and listen to conversations. And, you know, and, and uh, I, was, I was into into heavy metal, you know, and uh, Zeppelin, Aerosmith when I was you know, 10 or 11 or 12. And then... <clears throat> the pivotal moment in my you're going to relate with this because I know these are characters that you're familiar with, but the pivotal moment in my musical life was seeing the Zero Boys for the first time when I was about 14. Where was that at? It was on the street. And, and this is, you know, of course, you, there were no ologist clubs. It was bars or nothing. But the one thing they did in Bloomington that was really, really cool was called, this, uh, there was a, a cable radio station called WQAX. And they had these street dances every summer where they block off a, uh, you know, a block of a street downtown and just have bands set up right on the street and play. And people kind of wander around, you know, and nobody actually danced, you know. And, and this is in the new wave days. This is like 79, 80, 81, around there. And, you know, they had bands, like there's this band, the Dancing Cigarettes, who were kind of like, you know, jerky, kind of, you know, sort of uh, New York art rock. And, you know, the, the Gizmos, you know, great band with, uh, you know, Dale Lawrence is one of my favorite songwriters. But then, anyway, so I went to one of these street dances, and my brother was two years older than me, and he had all these buddies in high school who had a band called The Resistors. And they eventually became uh, Moto X, if you remember them. So it was like a surf band. But they were high school kids, you know, covering Sex Pistols and stuff. And the word was that at this one street dance, this would have been about 1980, 81, there was a real punk band playing. It's like, you got to come to this one because it's a real punk band. I didn't know what that meant, you know. <clears throat> I read Cream, Cream Magazine, you know, and I read the media about the Sex Pistols and everything. And, you know, I had a few records, but I really didn't have a concept of what a real punk band would be. And I showed up, and it was the, the, the very young, very scrappy Zero Boys, and, and they were just phenomenal. You know, it was uh, absolutely life-changing. So, you know, from there, it kind of pointed the direction of my life. It's like, okay, this is what I want. Whatever this is, this is what I want. My my high school girlfriend was Frida, who who uh, was eventually the drummer in the Blake Babies, who I went out with and played with for years. But uh, you know, we met in that scene, and we actually started our own all ages club. We we scouted a location which was a you know empty storage space above a Salvation Army store, and you know about a dozen of us cleared it out. We built a stage and. You know, we built this like erector set thing where you could put the soundboard on top, and we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> but we had shows there, and we had like Sam Hain played there, and Seven Seconds, and you know, Dirty Rotten Imbeciles, like a lot of the kind of big hardcore touring bands of the day. <clears throat> and I had this buddy who's a professor at UC Davis now, and he was kind of the king of the scene. He's the one who figured out you could get maximum rock and roll and go to the ads in the back, and you know, they'd get a phone number for like you know some band's agent and call him up and. And we figured out, we knew that we could get the same, like, 50 kids to come to every show, and they'd all pay three bucks. So it was like, well, we know we can guarantee them $150. And that was enough. You know, it's like we weren't really taking a risk because we knew that our friends would show up. And then if it was a big show, you know, the carloads would come down from Indianapolis. And, you know, we have all the skater kids up there. You know, then we'd get in the car and go up there for the shows that Paul put on. And it, was a, it was a nice community. Did you... Uh... <clears throat> Could you relate to the DIY ethic at that time? Or 
I will Did you say, realize that was even what that was? It's, it's, I mean, it's all I knew. You know, th- this is interesting because this is the foundation for how I look at music and the music business. Because it was amazing to be 15 or 16 and realize you could make a record. And you could book your favorite band. And you could meet your favorite you know, singer in a band. And, and they were just like you, you know. Like, Mayhern was two years older than me, you know. It's not like he was some kind of grown-up. It was all kids, you know, so it was a community of kids. And that seemed completely separate from, like, Black Sabbath, you know, and Cheap <laughs> Trick or whatever was going on, whatever was going on at the, at the arena, you know. That was just a different world. Yeah. And I remember having conversations with my friends about that. Like, you know, we like those bands, and that's cool stuff, but we could never just go up and meet Ozzy, you know. It's like you can't just walk up and there's Ozzy sitting at the front of the stage and, hey, Ozzy, how you doing, you know. But you could meet Ian Mackay, you know, that way. And, and he was no less heroic to us than Ozzy. You know, it's like we saw it as all the same thing. It's just like, these guys are accessible, you know. They're doing what we're doing, only just they're just a little further along, you know. And that was inspiring. And, and when I moved to Boston, it was definitely with a lot of big ideas about how to kind of take that. And You know, I wasn't thinking about, oh, I'm going to start a band and get signed to a label. It was like, <clears throat> you know, we're going to make records and we're going to do it like that, just on a slightly bigger scale. I mean, that's, that's one of the things about, it's hard to explain to musicians who are coming up now or even came up in the 90s about being a musician in, in the 80s is, you know, there were two kinds of musicians back then who were, you know, doing it on some, whatever you call it, professional level. One were the ones who were, you know, Mr. Mister, you know, more careerists, you know, through major labels and, you know, aspiring to, be household names. And then there were the ones who were independent, underground, where that wasn't even a remote possibility. You know, it's like you were taking a vow of poverty if you decided to be one of these bands or you're going to get in the van because, you know, who are your heroes? You know, like the Pixies or Sonic Youth or Husker Du, you know, none of them ever got to that level. They sell 100,000 records. That's amazing. You know, it wasn't until Nirvana that it kind of opened up and became a different thing. But anybody who was in it before Nirvana, who was in underground music before Nirvana was not in it to make a living. You know, there's sort of, they had credibility just automatically because it wasn't even a possibility. You know, it wasn't like, I want to do this and get gold records and make a million bucks. I mean, that was, that was crazy talk. I don't know what my parents are thinking uh, at all because they would let me. There's this guy, Scott Colburn. You, you remember Scott Colburn? No. He's, I'm kind of in touch with him. He's, he's a really cool guy. Uh, he's, he's a producer engineer. Like he produced the, or engineered one of those arcade fire records and he, I think animal collective, you know, he's kind of in that world, but he's a Seattle guy. And he moved to Bloomington when I was, I think a sophomore in high school and he was a freshman in college and he had this band from Columbus called killing children. Do you remember that? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a joke, hardcore band. And, you know, I was playing in kind of high school bands. We played a talent show or we'd, you know, play our own little all ages club. But, you know, Scott was kind of just a level below the zero boys. It's like he could go to Indianapolis and, you know, draw a hundred kids, you know, with killing children. And it was, it was funny. I mean, it meant to be funny. Well, it probably wasn't very funny. <laughs> but anyway, he, he asked around, he needed to find a band in Bloomington because he started college. So he found me and this friend of mine, Dave Fortney. So we became Scott's band. So, you know, we would just get in the van on weekends and we'd drive to Chicago. Or, or we drive to Lexington or Cincinnati or wherever, you know, pretty much every weekend. And I was 15 years old. And my parents were just cool with it. They're like, oh, all right. 
responsible adult. He's 19. (laughs) He owns a van. It's just like, yeah, we're showing up and it's like, you know, we're sleeping on some floor or some squat, you know, there's like, you know, bongs and cases of beer. They had no idea what was going on. It was fine with Well, okay, so I moved to Boston in 1985, and I went to Ber- Berkeley College of Music, and I was not a serious student in high school, which was very, very d- distressing for my parents because they're academics, you know. They would think of, you know, making B's in public high school in, in Bloomington, Indiana as an utter, you know, miserable failure academically, and they did. So <clears throat> they kind of knew that I wasn't really college material at the time. And so they were cool with this Berkeley College of Music thing because I, I had this idea that I would go become a recording engineer because I thought it was to articulate the goal of wanting to be a professional musician just sounded too silly and absurd. So I said, I want to learn how to be a recording engineer. They said, fine. They sent me to Berkeley. And, you know, for a year I did just that. You know, I didn't really play. I went to my classes. I did pretty well in school. And then Frida moved out, my high school girlfriend. And she is the one who had the real ambition. You know, she's like, we got to start a band now. And, and I'd been a drummer coming up, and I'd switched to guitar, and I gave Frida my drums, and I kind of taught her some basic stuff so she could kind of, kind of play drums at that point. <laughs> you know, she became very good, but she was kind of a drummer, but she's like, we got we to gotta get a band. So she kind of put it together initially, and she went out and found Juliana Hatfield, you know, wandering the halls of Berkeley. She's like, that's going to be our singer. And Juliana was like, yeah, let's go. So... You know, when Frida got there, this band came together. And, um, you know, then, you know, the hardcore scene had changed at that point. And the hardcore scene in, in Boston had become this really kind of sort of violent, kind of unpleasant thing, you know, where real sort of uh, militant straight-edge kids and, and you go to the shows and it was, it was more about aggression. I just couldn't relate to it anymore. Yeah. And the bands that I was interested in were kind of evolving. And my tastes have always been all over the map. And, I kind of had a few years where it was all about loud and fast. And then uh, eventually I just, you know, kind of realized I really like songs. And, you know, and I started writing songs. And so the band that we made, the Blake Babies, was much more song-oriented. It's kind of what we could do. You know, we had a rudimentary drummer. Juliana was a pretty rudimentary guitarist. And we didn't really know what we were doing, but people took to it pretty quickly. And uh, then I also, around that time, met the Lemonheads guys. I'd heard of the Lemonheads because they were kind of in the punk scene there, you know, and I kind of paid attention to the hardcore scene. And, you know, they had a van that said had the Lemonheads spray painted on the side of it, but they, they didn't mean anything. I mean, they, they, they were a, a high school kids. You know, they were, when I was a first year music student, they were seniors in high school. And there was this radio show on uh, WERS, which is the Emerson College station called Metro Wave every Sunday night where a local band would play for an hour. And I always listened to it because I couldn't get into bars. I wanted to hear what all the local bands sounded like. So I would make a point every Sunday of being at home between 8 and 9 so I could listen to Metrowave as it, as it aired. <clears throat> Never missed it. And it was great because I got to know what all the bands sounded like. I mean, it was like Volcano Suns and you know, Big Dipper, all these bands that were you know, kind of meaningful. Uh, but then one Sunday they had the Lemonheads, and I was listening to it, and I was like, this is cool. You know, these guys, I like their voices, you know, but it was kind of scrappy and a little amateurish. But then, out of nowhere, they rip into Living, Living in the 80s by the Zero Voice. Wow. So I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm freaking out because this is my, you know, these are my high school heroes, and it's like coming full circle. I'm like, 
this is an Indiana band. How do they know about this? In Boston. <laughs> yeah. So then I became really, really interested in the Lemonheads and, and uh, you know, and then I, you know, sort of made a point of meeting them and, you know, asking about how they knew the Zero Boys. And it turned out there was this whole kind of community around the Harvard radio station of, you know, uber music collector geeks. And the Zero Boys was one of their favorite bands. You know, it's like the living in the 87 inch, you know, which they made like 500 of was at that point worth about you know, 200 bucks, you know, and it's like coveted thing. And, and um, so it's interesting because those guys are really from a different culture than me because, well, they're, they're kind of rich kids, you know, like two of them graduated from Harvard, you know, and is the original sort of punk rock lemonheads. And then Evan Dando was a, you know, his dad's a successful lawyer. They all had vacation homes and, and the vineyard and stuff like that. But it's like we connected completely over music you know, being in the same music and having a uh, similar sense of humor, you know? And it was very, very natural for me to kind of fall into that band just because, you know, we were just bros right away. So there was a, an amazing period of time there <clears throat> in Boston. I don't know how much you know about the, you know, the bands that came out of Boston at that time, but there was a period of about two years between 87 and 88 when there were all these local bands that, you know, if you're into rock and roll, we're just amazing. You know, it's like the Pixies were a local band. You know, Dinosaur Jr. was a local band. Uh, the Lemonheads is a local band. Um, you know, Buffalo Tom was a local band. Galaxy 500 was a local band. You know, all these bands that have gone on to have a real big story were just playing the clubs around town. And, you know, for me, coming up a music fan and just kind of, you know, here I am at my local club and there are 50 people in the room and, and the Pixies are playing, you know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, you're kind of pinching yourself, like, is this as good as I think it is? And, you know, kind of thinking like this can't go anywhere, but, you know, but, you know, but up and up and up, which it did. But that was the most exciting moment, you know, was, was when it wasn't yet a big deal, but you could tell it was going to be. It's like anybody with ears could say like, yeah, there's something here. <clears throat> and I was playing in both bands and both bands are kind of on the rise and, now, then when it became more of kind of a, okay, this is what we do for money, and, you know, we're going on a tour, and you know, we owe the label a record, it became, you know, somewhat less interesting. Two of the guys in the Lemonheads were, were Harvard students, and Harvard, Cambridge. Harvard doesn't have fraternities, but it has these things called eating houses, which are kind of the equivalent of fraternities. And eating houses have parties where they invite people. It's kind of an elegant scene. I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect, you know, like an exclusive club on, on, on club in Harvard. You know? And so we, Evan and, and his sister Holly and I got invited to one of these parties at an eating house one time. Oh, and this guy John Bing was our friend who'd gone to high school with Evan. And <clears throat> so we more or less crashed this party, and we had no business being there, but we knew somebody. And um, so we went to this party, and, and, and they, were, they were drinking Everclear pot. So they'd emptied about, you know, sort of gallon of, or two of Everclear into this punch bowl and put in a little fruit juice, you know. We're just you know, drinking this Everclear punch, just getting drunker and drunker. And they had this giant bullhead, like, you know, an actual bullhead that was mounted, you know. It was like a, you know, been to the taxidermist, you know, whatever. So they had a bullhead that was obviously had been mounted on the wall and somebody had taken it down. And some of the guys at this party who had been drinking this punch were messing with the bullhead, like they were putting cigarettes out on it and stuff. And Evan started to get really upset. And he's just like, he's like, what, what? It's like, it's beautiful. It's 
Like, how can they, how can they treat it that way? And, you know, got more and more angry about it to the point where he just like, all of a sudden impulsively just grabbed the thing and started running out of the, out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> so he had this giant bullhead and, uh, you know, carrying it over his head and he ran out the door, you know, like onto, onto, you know, I guess Mass Ave and, and, and Cambridge and he's running down the street and, you know, Holly and John and I are running behind him trying to catch up. We're like, what is he doing? Where's he going with this? <laughs> and he disappears around the corner and somebody saw him go and they, and they called the police. So it's like the police headed him off and, and they caught him. And <laughs> so when we finally got to the corner, what we, what we found was a police car Evan in the back seat, the trunk open. <laughs> they couldn't close it, and the bullhead sticking out of the trunk. <laughs> he had to apologize. Frida and I had been, you know, sort of chasing our music dreams for, for you know, four or five years, and got to the point where, all right, we were, you know, making a living if we live in Bloomington. You know, probably not in Boston. We have a good job, <clears throat> but that's part of why we went back. Is that it's cheap. And it's, it's weird. It's like I, I had this weird compulsion to go back. I really didn't like Boston. And, and looking back on it, I understand why. It's kind of a harsh place. You know, like, I love the South because I love the people, you know. And I know a lot of the, you know, the, the friendliness and a lot of the congeniality is completely bogus and phony. But I'll take it, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's like that works, you know. And Boston is very harsh. I, I always lived uh, kind of deep in Som Somerville. And, you know, you'd ride the bus and everyone's grumpy, you know, and I just started to hate Boston, you know, and uh, I love a lot of the people I met there. And I feel very, you know, blessed to have been there at a time when there was so much great stuff going on in music. I just didn't like the place. And so I sort of desperately wanted to get back to Indiana. So, you know, we realized that it was, you know, going to be cheaper, but it was also probably a lousy career move for me at that point because, you know, there were just fewer resources. But... You know, we got to we got back to Bloomington, you know, and the Blake Babies broke up and you know, we started a new band antenna and kind of became part of the music community there. And you know, that I did that for about I guess it was about four or five years. And um you know, it was interesting because in, in Bloomington, I know Tim Jones was talking about this and in Bloomington it's a very weird sort of insular place, and I'm sure it's different now, partially because there's more going on, they've got secret Canadian there and there's more sort of precedent for bands doing well coming out of there but you know we moved there with you know some stuff going on you know, we weren't you know superstars by any means but we had a record deal and yeah. you know we made enough dough to kind of you know keep a roof over our heads but I really felt like you know I had a lot more to accomplish you know to kind of get to where, where I wanted to get with the music you know but when we showed up, it's like, you know, there were a lot of bands that weren't that far along that were, were aspiring to get there. And it's funny because when I think about it now, I realize that I, I put myself in kind of a community of enablers because all of my friends, you know, were, were trying to be musicians, you know, and they looked at me as somebody who'd kind of gotten there. It's like, all right, dude, you know, so a lot of the feedback I got from the people directly around me were like, what do you mean? You know, it's. You're, you're about to go on tour, you know. How awesome is that? And and I'd say, yeah, I guess it is pretty awesome. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'd realize I had about three hundred bucks in the bank, you know, and didn't own a car, you know. But but yeah, I'm about to go on tour. But then also, they're they're, you know, unlike anywhere I've ever lived, 
there were just a lot of kind of angry, bitter people, you know, who, who uh, you know, it's the only place I've ever lived where I felt like, you know, a lot of people didn't like me for, for, for no good reason, which is a little stressful. And, uh, you know, I certainly don't feel like that happens here because, you know, the level where I was at my peak, if it were in Nashville in 2013, it'd be kind of like, yeah, man, you got a shot. Keep at it, kid, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because there's so many people who just obviously made it. And the the context that I have now, now that I work with so many different artists who are way farther along than me, you know, I realized that so much of it was kind of built around delusion and, you know, aspiration and. You know, you get into this cycle, and, and uh, you know, I, I was never particularly careerist about it. It wasn't like my objective was to make a living. But, you know, after Nirvana happened, it suddenly became possible. And I had a publishing deal, you know, not for any good reason, but I did. And you'd get into this cycle where, you know, you're making an album a year, and, you know, your whole year's structured around this album that you're making. And, you know, you start to psych yourself up that, like, yeah, this is the one. This is the one that's going to put it over the top. You know, just got to hang in there for this one more record. You know, these songs are the ones. You know, yeah. and then you make the record, and you know, there's a little activity around it, and you go play some shows, and then you're kind of where you were. You know, and but it's it's a kind of a psychosis because you can do that for thirty years. You know, <laughs> and I know people who have. They're just like, oh no, man, this is the one. <laughs> so. My wife, Heather, her best friend is this, this guy named Rob LaRoche. She still lives in Birmingham. He was a huge Blake Babies fan. I mean, a huge fan. You know, kind of borderline obsessive fan. So when Heather started going to Indiana University, he started pressuring her to find the Blake Babies because he knew the two of us lived there. And we, you know, we had a self-release record that we made back in 1987 that was worth a little bit of money. We just made a 1,000 of them, LPs only. And, of course, I had a little stash of them, you know. So his his mission for his friend Heather, who was, you know, at best sort of a, a you know, casual fan of the group, you know, was to find this record. And he said, if you find it, I'll give you 100 bucks. This is before eBay, you know. And uh, so she started going around to record stores, and um, she went to this place called The Wooden Nickel in, in Kirkwood. Asked the guy, and the guy's like, well, of course we don't have it. But he said, you know, I do know that John Strom, you know, I could give him a call. And she's like, yeah, why don't you? So so this guy's like, yeah, there's a real pretty girl in here. He's trying to buy the Blake Babies record. I was like, oh, yeah, I haven't had some of those. So I, I, I ended up giving her the record. I met her. I was, like, I was like, I can't take her money. And she turned around and sold it to us. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, Heather, so, um, you know, she, she wasn't all that impressed by, uh, you know, me, the musician, you know, but, but we became friends and, you know, developed a friendship which led to a relationship. But she was the first person who ever told me, and this is literally true, including my parents, including everyone I'd ever been friends with. She was the first person who ever said, you know, you're a smart guy, you can do whatever you want, you know, you should go back to school and, and get it together, you know. And... I mean, honestly, that had never occurred to me. You know, it was like 1997. You know, the Lemonheads broke up. I didn't have a record deal. I was kind of struggling. And she was like, yeah, well, just decide what you want to do. And it doesn't seem like that would be such a revelation. You know, you'd be like, <laughs> really? But so then, you know, I started taking classes at, at UAB in Birmingham. And I said, well, you know, 
and I'd been a lousy student, and all of a sudden I could I could do well in school. It's like took a couple classes, got a couple A's, you know, and then I I, I ended up just you know going full bore, and I you know, graduated with a four point grade point average, which is it, it was easy. You know, it's like oh college, okay, and then it was like well okay, so I graduated from kind of a you know middle of the pack you know local campus university with a history degree. What what am I going to do now? You know so. I think that going to law school was was more more like a you know kind of a you know a challenge than anything else. It was like it was like here's something that you know might be interesting and hard and and weird, you know. But but also it was kind of like here's a way to hide for another three years, you know, not have to make any real life choices. Yeah. So I went to law school and 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 you know to my genuine surprise, it was kind of easy for me. You know, I did really well in law school, and um, you know, I, I graduated with with a, with a you know good academic record, and I had you know employers coming to me saying, "Come work for us." So I um, took a job with a big corporate law firm. You know, it's like they offered me a job for you know a nice salary. I said, "Okay, this is what you do." So you know, without really reflecting that much, you know, I'd gone from being a musician to kind of being in this weird sort of in-between space of being in school and having babies to being a guy that went to work in a suit every day, you know, and working on big corporate deals, you know, sitting in an office and having a secretary. And, and you know, it was kind of a moment in my life. It was like that, that you know, that once in a lifetime, <laughs> like you may find yourself, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, what the hell happened? You know, because I didn't really like it, you know. And all of a sudden, I had a lot of pressure because I had kids, you know, and we owned a home, you know, and I was, I was a lawyer in a law firm, and I was kind of like, this, this isn't me, you know. And and at that point, I had to find my way back to music somehow, you know, or go crazy. And so it was really just kind of a, you know, the product of, you know, real determination and and, uh, you know, effort to kind of get to the point of being working with musicians, which is, I mean, that's, music people are my people. You, you understand this. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't really relate to real estate people, you know. We just don't have the same interests, you know, and I can't be as passionate about what they're doing because I don't understand it as well, even emotionally, you know. I understand music, I understand musicians, you know. So I had to find a way to kind of, you know, evolve to the point of doing that. And and thankfully it's worked. You know, it's uh, you know, I quit my job with a big firm. I went to work for a smaller firm that, you know, really supported me and helped me get there. And you know, eventually I got to the point where I had enough going on in that world so that I could, uh, you know, come to a place like this and and you know do it with a, with a more substantial platform in, in Nashville, New York City. Right? So I I think my big break. You know, this is interesting because when when musicians want to find legal counsel, you know, they don't really ask the right questions, you know. They're not asking about, you know, your rates and you know, how you deal with conflicts of interest and, you know, sort of, <laughs> you know, whether they can get you on the phone or whether you're actually going to be the one doing the work. Uh, they want to know who else you work with. You know, they want to be part of that club. And that's that's true of any kind of you know, job you have in the music industry. It's like if you're going to find an agent, you want to know who else they represent, you want to find a manager, who do they work with. So <clears throat> it's very hard to get any traction before you have clients that people recognize, you know. 
And it's frustrating because I remember taking those calls. Like I get on the phone with somebody and they'd be like, who do, who do you work with? And I'd say, oh, you know, bands and songwriters. And, you know, <laughs> just kind of try to coast through it. And they say, oh, okay. And then, um, yeah, my, my, my break, because I had a few clients that were, you know, I was actually doing some deals and had some, some artists that I represented who were, who were doing okay. But my, my big break was, um, you know, people started saying, oh, he's, he's doing something significant was, I got the Bon Iver demo, you know, and, and for that first album. And the, the manager who was, who was 19 years old at the time somehow got my name and sent it to me. And, you know, I listened to it and I knew right away that it was special. And, uh, you know, he interviewed me for about an hour and a half. And, you know, at the end he was like, <laughs> congratulations, you know, you're, you're Bon Iver's lawyer. And, and it was like, oh, great. You know, and of course they had nothing going on. You know, it was just the guy with a demo tape. But, you know, that was the first thing I worked with where it really just took off, you know. And then, you know, for, for a year or so there, it was like, oh, yeah, that guy, yeah, that's Bon Iver's guy. You know, and then, you know, that kind of begat, begot, other other stuff, you know. Other people are like, "Oh, he must be real," you know. And and it's a community thing. And and I was reflecting on this, and I've had such incredible good fortune getting to work with great people. You know, I mean, it's important to me to be at least interested in the music that people are making that I'm working with. You know, to respect it. You know, if not like it. But what's much more important to me is that I get to work with you know, great people who have integrity and are doing it for the right reasons. And it's like project after project. It's like, wow, this is another great community of people, you know, that I'm happy to be friends with and, you know, proud to work with. And at some point you realize it's not really luck. It's, it's a, you know, the result of this kind of community where musicians talk to each other. And, you know, if they work with somebody and it works well, they say, hey, you know, call this guy. And, you know, it's just, it can't be dumb luck to just time and again have more really great people. Yeah, I was in my office. This is this is just a few months before I moved to Nashville, so summer of uh, 2011. And um, you know, Birmingham is not a music business town, as you I'm sure you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like people in the music business just show up in Birmingham. I mean, I had like three friends there that were, you know, arguably in the music business. You know, but it's you know, I was I was an I was an odd duck there after a certain point it's like what do you do so i'm sitting in my in my office you know and and uh i get a call from this guy who's the head of anr for uh columbia records and he's like hey he's like i'm going to be in birmingham tomorrow uh you want to get together for coffee and I, I knew him from doing other deals you know so i said sure great you know didn't ask him why i was going to be here and then you know a couple of hours go by then i get a call and it's this big manager from new york calling me he's like hey I'm gonna be in Birmingham tomorrow. He's like, you wanna you wanna grab some coffee or something? And uh, I said, sure. So, you know, they were both. I, I asked both the A and R guy and the manager, you know, where they were gonna be, and they're like, well, we're just we're heading to Tuscaloosa, so you know, we can meet close to the highway. So I set up both meetings back to back at this at this Starbucks and a Barnes and Noble off the highway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, so so the A and R guy shows up, and I was like, so what are you doing? He's like, well going to Tuscaloosa because I'm going to take a riverboat cruise because this band called The Shakes is playing and and they're amazing. And you need to check them out. And and he was kind of describing it and he's like, you know, this this great band from 
him, and I hadn't heard of him. I was like, oh man, I got to get on that, you know. And then, you know, so then he leaves, and then the manager and, and his his uh, colleagues show up, and he's like, yeah, we want to talk to you about this band that we're managing called the Shakes. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, you know, they're really good, and they're looking for legal counsel. So I went to see them. Um, uh, like a couple of days later, they came through Birmingham and they played the, the Bottle Tree, you know, and, and uh, they, you know, there were like maybe 20 people there, you know, 15 of them are people who drove down from Athens where they're from. It's like, you know, a couple carloads come down, you know, the case of beer. And, um, you know, they, they look kind of scrap. You know, they get up there, they got kind of, you know, scrappy kind of, kind of, uh, you know, setting their gear up, tuning on stage, you know, and it's just like I wasn't expecting all that much i hadn't heard a note you know and then they 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 ripped into their set and it was like you know fully formed you know it was just perfect i mean how often in your life do you hear a singer like that you know and it was it, so it was just this i think the one time since i've been doing this where i had one of those moments where i was in the right place at the right time you know and just <clears throat> you know it's kind of like the you know the skies opened up it's like this this is amazing and uh you know, and, and I mean, it was still sort of a process of, you know, getting to meet them. And it was still, you know, competitive because something that good, they're going to get their lawyers interested. But, you know, it was it was definitely one of those great moments in my life where it was like, now this is real. This is really something, you know. And, you know, six months before that or even less, they'd been they'd been a cover band. You know, they were playing, you know, four, four hour sets at the kind of roadhouse up in Athens, Alabama. You know, it was kind of like, you know, it's it's so rare that something arrives that's that kind of you know fully formed usually when you see a, a new band it's like yeah i see the potential here you know that's a good voice this could be good you know get the right producer involved but no that was 100 percent there how much time expired between that moment and say austin city limits not much not much it was interesting because you know the first couple meetings that i had with them and their manager they were just concerned about quitting their day job because yeah, they're blue-collar kids. I mean, they're not, you know, they, they, I mean, when they played Birmingham that one time, that was a big deal for them to come play Birmingham on a Wednesday night. You know, it's like, wow, here we are, you know. And from that to that, you know, from that to, you know, six months later, you know, being, you know, headliner at the, at Stubbs at South by Southwest, you know, it's like, that's a lot, you know. And it's, it's amazing with those guys because they've handled it really well. I know from my own experience, you know, because my band signed a record deal and we we're all 21 years old. I know that your brain's not really formed yet <laughs> <laughs> at that point, you know. And I know that the, there's this psychology with, with musicians where no matter how reasonable they sound, you know, when they're young, they have crazy ideas. You know, they just do. But the, the, the interesting thing about shakes you know alabama shakes is that what they saw as the sort of end of the road of success was being able to come up here and sell at the five spot you know to be able to you know pack out the bottle tree you know they weren't thinking in terms of like you know we're going to go to london and sell out three nights at shepherd's bush empire or we're gonna you know we're gonna you know headline the this festival or whatever. I mean, that wasn't, in, that wasn't in, in the cards. And when it was like, no, that's the way it's going, they're kind of like, well, we never got to have that get in the band moment. You know, they went, we went right from playing to 10 people to playing to, you know, to, to 3,000. 
Yeah, this is something that I, I should mention as being highly influential in my life because, you know, how did I find that with the music? Well, the music around my house was great. My father is an academic. He's also a big music fan. He was, you know, kind of the central thing in his life was Dylan. He loved Dylan and everything that kind of the band and, you know, <clears throat> you know loved a lot of folk music. And, and um, you know, so the stuff he played around the house was fantastic. And I didn't really recognize it as being fantastic at the time. It was just the music around the house when I was four, five, six years old. First music that was really my music was radio pop. But I really feel like that was the foundation of, you know, music I found my way back to eventually. Music that sounded right was the stuff that I was hearing when I was a little kid around the house. And he was also a bluegrass fan. And for several years in the early 70s, we would just go as a family put a blanket down and I listen to music all day. And, you know, I wish I had more clear memories of that because <laughs> I'm sure it was amazing, but, uh, you know, for, it was just a, you know, a nice day out. But uh, This is in Bean Blossom at the Bill Monroe Yeah, Festival. this is the, the Bill Monroe Festival in Bean Blossom. And I'm not sure exactly what all years it happened, but, you know, this is interesting because there was a guy you might have heard of named Jim Rooney. You know who Jim Rooney is? Yeah. Jim Rooney is a producer and musician who's deep in Nashville. He's been here since the 60s and had his hand in a lot of cool projects. He's a guy I really ought to look up. Um, but he wrote a book about Bill Monroe and Muddy Waters called Boss Men, which you should look for. It's a really good book. It's about, about band leaders focusing on those two guys. And Jim Rooney was my dad's buddy in college. So they, they went to Amherst College together graduated in what 1960 i guess you know so we're going way back so my dad had this buddy you know he had a couple of college buddies that went on to do interesting stuff he was also friends with paul zimmerman who wrote king of comedy yeah he used to come and stay with us he was a real interesting guy but rooney he'd call him rooney was was his uh his music world buddy so rooney would always come up to bean blossom and you know, we'd see him there he was he was kind of in the mix you know he knew all the guys and and uh i think that was part of it did he meet people like John Prine uh, through Jim Rooney? I think he produced did, Prine. Didn't my dad? No, I don't think so. I don't think he was close enough with Jim to, you know, really be have access to his world. I think he was just a guy he knew. Um, At the Bill Monroe Festival, did you ever meet Bill Monroe or Ralph Stanley or Jimmy Martin or any of these people that would play there? I was tiny, you know. Yeah. <laughs> my grandpa used to take me there, and um, I remember meeting Bill Monroe and shaking his hand. I was just a little kid. I didn't know who he was. I look back now and I make all of these connections to, um, you know, Ralph Stanley still sits at his merch table every night. Really? And he'll shake hands and meet everybody. And I, you know, and Jimmy Martin would do that. And I think of, I think that's no different really than what Fugazi and, you know, these punk bands were doing. It was very much, there was no difference between them and the people in, yeah. the, in their eyes. No, that's an ethic that I relate with very strongly. And it gets complicated if a band gets famous because... You know, you, you don't want to be too accessible because people are weird, you know. Yeah. But I think it's incredible when, uh, you know, that's that's something that, you know, when I, f I first started working with the Civil Wars, I went to see them in Birmingham, you know, right after the record had come out. And they were playing Workplace on a big venue, but you know, there were maybe like 500 people there. And they came off stage and, you know, it was you know, their families and the, their manager and, you know, and me and some, you know, good friends and they're, like they're like, 
we'll be back in a minute. And they went straight out to the merch table as people were leaving and stood behind the merch table and, you know, took every picture and signed every autograph for about an hour, you know. And, yeah, I mean, that's not that hard. If you think about the kind of day somebody puts in when they're, you know, working down at the mill or whatever, I mean, it's, you know, it's not hard to talk to people for an hour. But I can tell you this, we never did that in Lemonheads. That was not part of that culture. You know, you regarded people with suspicion and you kept safe distance. You know, it's like you would not go out and sign stuff. And I just followed suit. I mean, I didn't think it was cool. I just, it would have been weird for me to go out there by myself. You know, I want to meet people. You know, we had a, always had a list of people that, you know, were not, never to get within 10 feet of having Dando, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like seeing, you know, and, and I've seen that countless times now. It's like that's in the culture of musicians. And I was talking to John Paul White after, you know, we, we had breakfast the next day. And I said, that was really cool the way you went out and signed stuff and, you know, talked to every fan. And he said, well, he said, number one, I'm grateful to be doing this. And, you know, I'm grateful that they came and I want them to know that, which is cool. And then he also said, he said, I, I grew up being a country fan. And he said, in the, in the country industry, that's the way people are. You know, they have fanfare, and it's like you go and you pose for every picture, you know. And that's why country artists have such a loyal fan base. That's why you know, Travis Tritt can go out and play arenas. I don't know if he can or not, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, conceptually. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, that's why the, these, uh, you know, the, the country artists that was big in 1993 can still, you know, tour successfully and, and, and make money now is because people still love them, you know. Did you ever go to the Little Nashville Opry? Yeah. I, I, I used to go there. I saw George Jones there. Oh, beautiful. And, uh, and saw Merle there. Uh, you know, but what they do there is, is uh, so funny to see this old school, you know, it's like, for the first, I guess, song or two, they would you could take pictures, you know. So, so possum would come out there and be standing in front, you know, and you'd have this huge queue of you know, sort of like a <laughs> middle age kind of, you know, drove in from from Knobbone uh, or whatever, you know, <laughs> coming up and clicking a photo of the possum, you know, and it's like we'll pose for it, you know, that's part of the deal, you know. Oh, but this is funny. Speaking of the possum at Little Nashville Opera, this is one of my funniest moments in the history of. Uh, my concert going. So it was, you know, this was 94, 95. So he was, you know, I don't know if he was wasted or not, but he was definitely kind of on the decline, you know, <laughs> played a show, you know, he sang about four songs. He let, let the guitar player sing a solo. He had some woman sing a solo, you know, it was like a, you know, sort of gave about 40%, you know, and it's great to see him, you know, yeah. George Jones. come on. <laughs> but anyway, then he left the stage and the band was still playing. And, and I was there with my dad and he looked at me and he's like, he's coming back he's like, nah. <laughs> he's like yeah let's get out of here so so we walk out we're the first people out of the hall and as we're walking out of the front of the venue going up you know highway 46 up towards bloomington is the possum's bus <laughs> he's out of there it's like good on you possum you earned it <laughs> no meet and greet for that guy <laughs> good to be george <laughs> guess so I appreciate you uh, sitting down and chatting with me, Jim. Oh, it's a pleasure, man. Good. Well, we can, we can next time we can hang and have a chat where we're, uh, I don't have to think about what I'm saying. We'll do it at Moss Tacos or something. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John Strom for inviting me over to his office in Nashville and having this conversation with me. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment on there. It'll just take you a few seconds, but it'll go a long way towards helping us spread the word and help people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.